The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, We are going through the book of Acts, 28 chapters in our English Bible, written around 60 A.D., about 30-plus years after the Lord Jesus Christ died, rose again, and ascended back into heaven, and then God began to do his work through his apostles and disciples. Christians in the gospel and the church began to grow and spread throughout the the then-known world. And about 30 years after Christ's uh, ascension into heaven, Luke wrote down what God had done through the ministry of the 12 apostles spearheaded by Peter and also the, the ministry spearheaded by the apostle Paul, who was a special instrument or apostle chosen by God. And so that's the book of Acts, the early history of the church. And we are right in the middle of it now. We are now in chapter 14. And it's, this is our history, if you're a Christian, learning many wonderful lessons along the way. It's narrative, so you have all these select stories that Luke chose. Luke had much he could have chosen and written, but he was selective. So every time you find a passage in the book of Acts, it's not there by accident, or that it was his mere human preference to put it there. He he was superintended by God's Spirit to highlight and put that very story in the Scripture for the saints of Luke's day, but also for the saints of the ages, including us. So everything is absolutely poignant, pertinent, specific, purposeful that we're going to find in this book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at the first seven verses on your bulletin there. I just kind of give. To, I want to set the broader context, especially for those of you who haven't been with us at all or every week, just to preserve some continuity in the story of where we are. Acts fourteen one through seven. I, I, the title I put on the sermon is the first journey, part four. Paul's ministry in Iconium is the name of the city where we'll see the ministry that Paul and Barnabas had there. Before I go through the brief background regarding this chapter. I wanted to ask everybody that's a Christian here this morning, I had a question for you. It's one of those Pastor Cliff diagnostic like quiz spontaneous questions that I am prone to ask. Just one question. It's a yes or no question, so it's 50-50. And you're not allowed to say it out loud. You've got to do it in your own head or in your own heart. If you're a Christian this morning, here's my question. If you are a Christian, imagine me going up and accosting you in the lobby before church, and I ask you, as I corner you over there by yourself, and I know you're a Christian because I know you personally and you're a regular attender or a member here of GBF, and I just ask you your name, so-and-so. So are you a missionary? That would be my question to you, so it's either yes or no. So if somebody asked you that, are you a missionary? What would your first initial response be, yes or no? Now, if you said no... Yet you're a Christian. Let's tell you, that's the wrong answer. You failed the test. Zero percent. F minus minus. But that's okay. Um, It's I don't intend it to be a trick question, but it's a confusing question. If you said yes and you're a Christian, then that is the correct answer. And some of you might be confused. Well, I'm not a missionary. I haven't gone out into Africa or don't live there. I'm local and I'm a Christian. Now, the problem is that the word mission, missionary or missions, 
those three they are not in the Bible. In other words, they are not biblical terms. And that's what causes confusion. And those are actually from the Latin. They're Latin terms that came centuries after the Bible was written. And then they trickled down into our English language. They're not unbiblical terms, but they're non-biblical terms. And anytime you have a, a non-biblical term trying to describe biblical ministry, it really confuses the issue because it's not a precise term. But I'm just going to... I'm not going to take issue with the term mission or missionary or missions because it's just in the vernacular. It's what we use. Everybody kind of knows sort of what we mean by that. Uh, but I, in light of that, then I'll just say, if you're a Christian, you are a missionary. And what I, the reason I can say that is because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the apostles, and he meant this for all believers, you are my witnesses, okay? So that's what we are. We're not missionaries, we're witnesses. Martyros. I mean, I'm using Jesus' term. If you're a Christian, you're a witness. So if I were to ask you, if you're a Christian, are you a witness of Jesus? You'd probably say yes. It's a better term than missionary. But that's the noun. That's kind of who you are, who we are. There's actually a lot of terms describing Christians, and witness is one of them. Are you a witness? I am. I'm a witness for Jesus. At least we're supposed to be. We didn't become one. We didn't educate to get one. We didn't get ordained by the church to get one. We didn't train and take school to get become one, a witness. God made us one. God made you a witness when he saved you. It's his doing. It's not ours. Then the second part of that is, aside from the noun witness, is the verb. With respect to missions, it's we do missions. We go on missionary trips. That's the verb. The biblical terminology that's better is, are you a discipler? Or do you do discipling? Or are you making disciples? If I asked you that as a Christian, you better say yes, because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 28 and other places. That's the biblical mandate. That's the verb. So we are all, as Christians, we're all witnesses. That's who we are. And what we've been called to do is to disciple, because that's the main verb in Matthew 28 of the Great Commission. We disciple. That's really a better description of biblical missions. Because it's more specific, it's more precise, and immediately it changes everything and makes us realize, oh, okay, uh, for me to say, someday I want to be a missionary. Well, if you're already a Christian, you shouldn't really be talking that way. Because God's already made you a witness, and he's commanded all of us to disciple, make disciples. That includes evangelism, training and teaching and edu- educating and equipping fellow believers, helping them grow. And with that also is planting churches. That's all involved. Uh, that That is true biblical missions. And... Uh, the book of Acts is par excellence, the, the quintessential example and model for us of what true biblical missions is all about, or being a witness and also discipling and church planting. Uh, but I just want to clarify that because some maybe aren't familiar with the more biblical terminology, so I hope that's helpful for you. So next Sunday when I ask you in the corner, are you a missionary? Of course, you're going to say yes. Uh, good answer, good answer. So let's go ahead and look at... Uh, Paul on his missionary journey or his discipling journey or his church planting journey or his evangelistic journey or his teaching and edifying and preaching journey. You can call it all of those things because that's what it is. We're going to look just at the first seven verses here, divided up into three points to go through the narrative, a little background. Acts 1 through 12, the first 12 chapters, highlights Peter's ministry to Jerusalem and Samaria. Acts 13 and 28, where we are right now, makes a transition and highlights Paul's ministry 
to the Gentile world beyond Judea. Chapters 13 and 14, we've covered the first half, now we're in the second half, is describing Paul's first missionary journey. He went on, we say, four missionary journeys. This is the first of four. Paul and Barnabas are on this first missionary journey together. They travel a total of 1,235 miles from what we can tell. Uh, They stop, and Luke highlights ministry done in eight major Greek cities, although they actually went and preached in many more cities than just eight. We think this took around two years or more, this trip, from about 46 A.D. to 48 A.D. This is about 17 years after Jesus ascended from heaven. Paul and Barnabas and his missionary team, which originally included John Mark, they were sent from the home church of Antioch in Syria, which is 300 miles north of Jerusalem, where a revival broke out and a church was established, and Paul and Barnabas became elders and pastors and teachers at that church. And they were there for an entire year as the church grew, and then that church sent Paul and Barnabas out, uh, supporting them in these journeys. Their habit, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, as they went from city to city, they're, keep in mind they're mostly going into Gentile or pagan cities. But in many of these cities, they had Jewish communities enough so that Jews could have established a synagogue. And if there was a city that had a synagogue in it, then Paul's procedure was to go first to the Jews into their synagogue and preach the gospel there. That's where he would start his launching pad, and then he would go out into the city to the Gentiles and the Greeks in that city. That's been his pattern that's already been established, and we've seen that so far. He'll continue to do that, him and Barnabas. Now we will see in chapter 14, verse 1, if you just look there, it says, in Iconium, in Iconium. Now on the map there, you see that they're now entering the city of Iconium. Last week we left off, they were in the city of Antioch of Pisidia, which is about 85 miles to the west of Iconium where they are today. So today, it's just a very brief and quick ministry in Iconium, seven verses, and we just want to highlight some of the details here. So they're in the middle of their first missionary journey. They come to the city called Iconium. Very significant things happen. Let me give you a little background about Iconium first. I don't want to just rush through it, this this very significant city. Paul and Barnabas were very strategic in where they stopped. Luke was very strategic and pointed about the cities that he highlighted. Luke thought the ministry in Iconium was significant. Paul and Barnabas deciding to go there and stop there, they thought it was significant. And there's reason for that, because Iconium was a very important city in that day in the Gentile world. Uh, Iconium, briefly there, was a city in Asia Minor, which we call modern-day Turkey. Some of you have been to Turkey and traveled there. You've told me about it. It, it was the, At the time, it was the capital of Lycaonia. That's a mouthful. It was part of a, the Roman province of Galatia. So Iconium is in like the south, most southernmost western part of Galatia, the region of Galatia. So when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he wrote it to more than one city. He wrote it to several cities that he had visited, and Iconium would be one of those. So Paul visits there and then plants a church, encourages the disciples, goes back home. A couple of years later, he writes back to the Galatians of the church that he planted. And that would include those in this city of Iconium. Iconium was also just 200 miles west of Paul's hometown of Tarsus. We noted that when Paul and Barnabas were sent off to their first missionary journey in the history of the world, they were strategic. Okay, where shall we go first? 
as Paul and Barnabas were discussing and seeking the will of God. And God sent them to, we talked about Barnabas' hometown, the, the island of Cyprus. That's where Barnabas was from. That's where he grew up. He knew the turf. It was his backyard. He knew all the nooks and crannies. They go there. And then after they do uh, the hometown of Barnabas, then they go up to Paul's neck of the woods. And that's why they're going up to Galatia. Or at least that's, it makes it. At least Paul knows the general vicinity. And the closer he gets to Tarsus, probably the more familiar he is with the territory, the terrain, the people. And so that's where they're kind of heading. They're actually on a main, main thoroughfare and road now in Iconium. It was a huge Roman road trade route that extended all the way from Paul's hometown of Tarsus all the way to the coast to the major city of Ephesus. So no doubt it could very well be. This was a very familiar road and route of the Apostle Paul. And so that's where he's headed, to Iconium, this very significant ancient city. It was a very large ancient city. It's been around for over 3,000 years, this city. It, it was one of those cities that was very... some. Traditions say that it existed before the flood. After the flood, and then it came back into existence again because of its prime location. But we do know that it existed about a 1,000 years B.C., Iconium by a different name, and has existed nonstop even up to this day. That's not true of all cities. Many ancient cities have just become obsolete, don't exist. They're underground. Nobody lives there. Not true of the city Iconium. It's been around for over 3,000 years. Think about your city. I think of Cupertino, where I'm from. Hadn't been around for 3,000 years. Hasn't been around for 300 years. Very recent. So this is amazing. This is a city that has been preserved all throughout history for thousands of years. Hence, contributing to its significance. In the days of Paul, it was a prosperous agricultural and commercial city. Apparently, they had a wool and textile ministry there, which is significant because that's one of Paul's professions as he worked with textiles. And we know from this passage, Paul ended up staying there a very long time in Iconium. And maybe to be able to stay a very long time in the city, he had to have a job and make money. And so maybe he did that on the side. We know he was a tent maker, could very well be. Uh, Also about Iconium, the word Iconium comes from the word icon, An icon is an idol, an image. This is rooted in its pagan idolatry, its religious heritage, which was paganism and idolatry. It was the capital of that region. It was a pagan city filled with immorality and idolatry. A mix of people there. There were Hellenized Galatians there. There were Roman officials there. There were Roman military veterans there. Because at about this time, just after Paul went there, Claudius, when he became emperor, he gave this city, Iconium, as a gift to the Roman military veterans to retire. And so there were many Roman military veterans that retired there, probably there in the days of Paul when he preached there. And there were some Jews there, enough to have a synagogue in that city. Paul visited here for the first time in about 46 AD, and he goes to visit three other times, at least two other times, but maybe three other times. Plants a church, gets chased out of town, and goes back, we know from the book of Acts, probably three more times, visiting the saints, visiting the church, encouraging the saints, checking in on them, putting his life on the line doing it, actually. Uh, There was a church council there in 235 A.D. in Iconium, so it continued to be a significant Christian city for hundreds of years. We have one written description of what the Apostle Paul actually looked like in history, that's intact, and it comes 
supposedly from a person who was who lived in the city of Iconia or Iconium. And it's still intact thousands of years later. Here's what it's not necessarily biblical. We don't know if this is true, but this is what it said. Written about 190 AD, someone from Iconium who knew the Apostle Paul saw a minister, and this is what they said about him. This is the living McManus translation of a very ancient Greek text. It said Paul was middle sized, his hair was scanty, his legs were a little crooked or bow legged, his knees were projecting, whatever that means. He had large eyes and a unibrow, a long nose, yet at times he looked like an angel. So that's actually a very famous text. We don't know if that is true. We do know that the Apostle Paul, in one of his epistles, said he was kind of homely looking. He kind of apologized for his appearance. Uh, Galatians was written to this people. 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul refers to the city Iconium reminding Timothy that he was persecuted here, almost lost his life here. Iconium is its ancient name, but today this city still exists in Turkey. You could go there today and visit it, and it would be called Konya, that's the name of it, Konya, Turkey. It has, get this, about a million people living in that city today. A million. Do you know who Dr. Oz is? Dr. Oz is that famous TV star during the day, TV show, Dr. Oz? Yeah, I hate watching the Dr. Oz show. I don't hate Dr. Oz, I hate watching his show because he's all about nutrition and health and things you should be eating and things you shouldn't be eating and I always get very guilty watching his show. That's why I don't watch it anymore. I'm tired of being convicted. Give me a Twinkie, whatever. Dr. Oz wouldn't like that. But the point is, Dr. Oz's parents were born in this city. They were born in Iconium. Born and raised there and then they came to America and then... Dr. Oz was born in Cleveland, Ohio. So anyway, with that, let's go and look at this quick but important ministry uh, from the Apostle Paul here in the city of Iconium. Starting at point number one, and that is Paul's, the heart of Paul's ministry, as you know already, was Paul and Barnabas were all about one thing, and that was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere they went. That's what they did. That's what a missionary does from a biblical point of view. They can do tangential complementary ministries as well. But that wasn't what Paul and Barnabas did. They didn't go and build houses for the poor and have soup kitchens and all that stuff. They just preached the gospel. They were seeking to plant the word of God, the gospel, that souls might be saved for all eternity, calling people to repentance and come back and be reconciled with their creator, the almighty God, revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. That was their mission. That was the content of what they did. And so we're going to see that as here. So hence, my three points are gospel preaching, gospel preaching, gospel preaching. So point number one, gospel preaching brings revival. And we're going to see this in Paul and Barnabas' ministry here in Iconium. So let's check it out. They just left uh, the city of Antioch where Paul preached an amazing sermon. Luke gives us a lot of detail of it. He gives, he's in the synagogue. He gives Old Testament history. He believes in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then he goes on to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. And that made a lot of the Jews very angry. So they basically booted him out of the synagogue and said, you know what, you can't come back and preach next week, even though we said you could. As a matter of fact, we don't want you in our town. And they chased him out of the city of Antioch. They did. And the Jews managed to brainwash some of the Gentiles in the city as well. And they chased Paul and Barnabas. They mocked him, persecuted him, and chased him out of town. You are not welcome in the city anymore. Get out. That's where we left off last week. And so 
Paul and Barnabas, okay, fine. They dusted the feet off, uh, the dust, uh, the dust off their shoes, and they went 85 miles, left Antioch, 85 miles, and went to Iconium to preach the gospel there. And so that's where we pick up in verse one. So in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, because that's what Paul and Barnabas always did. If there's a synagogue, we're going there first. And as we saw, from last week, Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue at Antioch. They were guests. They were sitting, who knows, where on the periphery against the walls or whatever, introduced themselves, had his uh, attire of being a rabbi. They knew he was a Jew. He spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, educated, so they picked up on that. So they invited Paul to speak in the synagogue in Antioch and no doubt does the same thing here, introduces himself. Oh, by the way, I studied under Gamaliel, who is the most famous Jew of the day. So that probably caught their attention. Wow, an educated uh Jerusalem, Tarsus, Jew. Wow, a rabbi. Pharisee. The tribe of Benjamin. Saul, Paul, can you bring a word of exhortation? Can you preach today in the synagogue? We welcome you. And so he accepts the invitation. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue, Paul and Barnabas, of the Jews together. And he was allowed to give the exhortation after the reading of the scripture and the prayer. And he goes on and he preaches probably another sermon just like the one we saw in Antioch. Giving Old Testament history, the big crescendo, and all of a sudden he starts talking about Jesus. Uh-oh. And we, we know the pattern, the reaction. Whenever he's talking about Jesus, giving the gospel, Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament or Hebrew prophecy, all of the prophets. Jesus, you know about him. He was, lived, had a ministry in Jerusalem. John the Baptist witnessed of him as the Messiah. The leadership of the Jews, they rejected him, executed him, crucified him. And yet on the third day, he rose again from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures, verifying that he indeed is the savior of the world. And if you recognize him as master, Lord, savior, and cry out to him for salvation and forgiveness of sin, not by your works, but by the works that he did on the cross, as God in the flesh, he will forgive you of your sin and you will be cleansed from all your sin and have eternal life and be adopted into the family of God. This is Jesus Christ. Now, half the synagogue were encouraged, enlightened, found hope, never heard anything like it before in their life, and they wanted more, and some of them actually believed. And half of the synagogue got angry and angrier the more he talked about Jesus. But many believed. And the point is here that gospel preaching brings revival. That's uh, uh, Although there is rejection and persecution, whatever, everywhere Paul goes as he's planting seeds, you see God bless, and there is response. There's positive response because God has his people everywhere. And this is true here. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed. There it is, a large number of both Jews and Greeks who were considering Judaism. They believed, they got saved. It's a, it's a very large number of people. Verse 2, but the Jews who disbelieved, who hardened their hearts, so some rejected the message of Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with it. They, what did they do? It says they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles. One translation says they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles not to believe Paul and Barnabas. Poisoned their minds. So it's a battle for the mind. Same is true today. We're trying to get mind, uh, truth in the minds of our people, truth in the minds of our children, and Satan and his agents are trying to take captive the minds of those people as well and fill it with 
lies, deception. It's a battle for the mind. Satan knows that. So the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds or poisoned the minds or made evil the minds of some of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren, caused them to be bitter about Paul and Barnabas. How did they cause them to be bitter and angry about Paul and Barnabas? They lied. They gossiped. And Satan used that. So although there's a large assembly who believes, there's a growing crowd of rebellion as well who are starting actually to become angry. I hope you're noticing as we go through as great hostility comes in opposition to the truth of Christianity when it's preached that this culture did not have freedom of speech. They didn't have the Bill of Rights. You could get chased out of town just for speaking truth. You could be executed for talking. You could be arrested for what you said. There is no freedom of speech. We've become accustomed to that here in America, even though we're losing it. Therefore, they spent a long time there, so they didn't run away. So there's opposition, yet at the same time, verse 3 says, they spent a very long time in Iconium. Doing what? Speaking boldly? Because they had this mass response to the gospel. They knew, Paul and Barnabas knew, there's great opposition, the Jewish leaders hate us, they might start coming after us, but we've got to stay here. We've got to disciple, we've got to train, we've got to establish a church, we've got to raise up leadership, so we don't know how long a long time is. Could have been weeks, could have been months. Maybe he was there for six months training the leadership, but he left a church intact when he was gone. Long enough to establish a baby church, testifying of the word of his grace, granting, and God blessed, and God allowed Paul and Barnabas to do miracles and signs there among the people. And no doubt some of these unbelievers saw the miracles that Paul was doing, and these hard-hearted, unbelieving Jews saw miracles that Paul and Barnabas did. That didn't convince them. That's how powerful sin is and blindness has to be a miracle of God from the Spirit of God to remove satanic blinders and sinful blinders for people to believe. But there was a great revival, and that always seems to go with gospel preaching. That's where true revival comes from. Let's go on to point number two after gospel preaching brings revival. Gospel preaching also incites riots. So you've got revival and riots. This is like through everywhere Paul goes. Preaches the gospel, there's belief, and whoa, there's a riot, we've got to run out of town. Oh, there's another riot, we're getting chased out of town. Whoa, and we're going to see that through the book of Acts. Is it because Paul was mean, that he was a rabble-rouser, that he was a community organizer, that he... No. Well, he's doing one thing, just preaching truth. And that's what truth does. The truth about Jesus causes division. Uh, verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews who didn't believe and had plots against Paul and Barnabas. Yet some did believe and they were actually with the apostles. Here it calls Barnabas an apostle, a sent one. And he's with the formal apostle, Paul. So the city is split. That's what truth does. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and other places, get this, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace to the earth. Well, wait a minute. I thought Isaiah said he was the prince of peace. Well, he is. He brings individual peace to the soul through salvation. But culturally, socially, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace and unify people, kumbaya and utopia. I came to bring truth, truth about sin, the need for repentance, to come back to the Creator, to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinners don't like that. Some will believe, some will not, and there is the result is division. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. A sword divides. 
And that's exactly what happens with Paul's ministry. So if you're in biblical ministry, don't be surprised that wherever you go, wherever you speak, wherever you teach, wherever you preach the gospel, you will get resistance. There will be division. That's what truth does. The city was divided. Verse 5, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone Paul and Barnabas, so they're devising a plan to hurt them, Paul and Barnabas catch wind of it. Gospel preaching incites riots, resistance, violence. Sinners hate the truth. Until God intervenes with the Holy Spirit, that will never change. Number three, verse six and seven. So gospel preaching brings revival. Gospel preaching also brings riots. And gospel preaching evinces resilience or cultivates resilience. True gospel preaching. It is possible when you preach the gospel, you get resistance or you get persecution. You could cower, fold, run away in fear, stop doing what you're doing, be silenced, not be bold for Jesus. It's possible, but many times we see faithful Christians, faithful apostles, all persecution and resistance does is allow their courage to grow and be manifest. Courage always grows and is manifest in the vortex of rejection, persecution. And that's true with Paul and Barnabas here. They stayed there. They were getting resistance, yet they stayed there a long time. Trusting the Lord, being wise, being discerning, gentle as a lamb, shrewd as a serpent. Yet they caught wind of this plan. There was a formalized Wholesale, citywide plan to put them to death. Paul's not an idiot. He knows our time has not come yet, so we need to move on. They're coming after us. Gospel preaching brings resilience, verse 6 and 7. So Paul and Barnabas became aware of the plan to murder them, really. So as a result, they fled the city they left. So sometimes it's wise to run. And they're not running out of fear. They're running to the next opportunity of ministry and the open door that God has before them. God... Uh, have much more for Paul and Barnabas to do. And now it wasn't his time. Paul's day would come where he'd get his head chopped off. But this was not that time. So they fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe. Those were very close by. They're still kind of in the region of Galatia and also the surrounding region. Uh, They didn't run to those cities and clam up and hide, cloister themselves. What did they do? Verse 7, they went to those cities and they continued to preach boldly and openly in the synagogues, in the cities, in the public square, the gospel of Jesus Christ, once again subjecting themselves to persecution and rejection. So they left the city of Iconium and traveled another 40 miles to the next city, which is 40 miles away. You would think in that day, you got to walk it or take your donkey and you're pretty safe, 40 miles away. But we're going to see in the next city, when they are preaching in Lystra, the angry Jews from Antioch, And Iconium come all the way looking for Paul and Barnabas to hunt them down in Lystra. And they're going to actually eventually catch at least Paul. And Barnabas gets away by the skin of his teeth. And we'll see that next week. So just a brief overview of blessings and lessons we can learn from Paul's ministry in the city of Iconium. And now we have the privilege today to do some baptisms. Um, And that's what Paul and Barnabas did in every city, no doubt, where they went and had disciples, people believed. And the model in the book of Acts was then they would be baptized as a public witness 
to their salvation in Jesus Christ. We're going to do that now. Let me go ahead and pray uh, as we finish up here. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look to your word. Once again, being reminded in a historical way of the truth and the power of your gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being the Savior. Thank you for the miracle of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel. The only two things really that can strip away satanic blindness and sinful blindness that prevents us from seeing your gospel clearly. Thank you for saving every soul of every believer here through the power of your gospel. And we thank you now that we have the privilege uh, to see some of the stories of how you've worked in people's lives through baptism. We give you all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning again. It is great to see you again. My name is Derek Brown. I'm Pastor Elder here at Grace Bible Fellowship, and we have the privilege and the joy today of baptizing a few people, and we are really excited about that because Jesus commands us to do it. He commands us to do it in Matthew 28, where he says, go, uh, baptize, uh, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So part of the disciple-making process is baptizing people. As we learn in the, uh, later in the New Testament, baptism is not something that creates salvation or regenerates the heart or is a work that's added to Christ's work. It is simply a sign of outwardly of what has happened inwardly to the person. They have died with Christ and they have been risen up with Christ in regeneration and new birth. And now they are obeying Christ's command to be baptized and to proclaim to the world that they are a disciple of Christ. And so that's what we're doing today. And we're very excited to introduce our first candidate for baptism, Kevin Foose. He is a Stanford student, friend of mine. He is part of the Grace Campus Ministries ministry, and the, um, he's going to share his testimony with you and tell you how he came to Christ, and then I'll have the privilege to baptize him. So why don't you come in here, Kevin? Just don't touch the microphone. We all want to go to glory, but not so soon. Um, and uh, so just speak into the microphone and, and share your testimony with us. Hello. You know, uh, today I'm carrying something. This is a million-dollar bill. Um, these are gospel tracks, and they've always had a special place in my heart because of the instrumental role that they've played um, in my salvation. As a kid, I was brought up in a Christian home. But I always tended to view religion as just a process of going through the motions. I never really had that inward conviction of sin for the first years of my life. Um, and unfortunately, um, even as early as elementary school, one of the patterns I had, which my parents could well attest to, is that I cultivated an unfortunate pattern of um, uh, dishonesty, especially in my school. In fact, one time, that, and just for any kids out here, not a good idea of forging signatures with a black colored pencil. Needless to say, that doesn't work out too well. Um, now, because of this, when I, when I had ever heard sin, I had always associated it with getting caught. 
that that was always what had made something wrong. And that was uh, something that had continued with me, that my goal was always just to not get caught when I was doing something bad. And one of the things that really was instrumental in my conviction and ultimate repentance was when our family was on a vacation in Los Angeles, as in the fourth grade. And I happened across one of these million-dollar bills. And it's so funny because at first I thought it was real money. So when I picked it up and looked in the back and started talking about sin, I wasn't too happy. Um, (laughs) But uh, I remember reading the message on the back. And what was so um, convicting for me was that, and this isn't the exact same as the one that I was saved with, but this is one that I'd got a, I'd done when I went out street um, witnessing with uh, James Bynum, but it does the same thing where it goes over the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that really hit me was that it had said that if you've told even one lie, God sees you as a liar and all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. And that even if you look at a woman with lust, it's adultery in your heart. And that if you um, hate a brother, that that's seen as murder in God's eyes. And for me, that was just so dramatic um, in that I had heard about sin before, but that really just opened my eyes as to how God really sees it and how um, wicked we are, we all are um, without Christ. And this is something that I had thought about, but at first I just thought, okay, the other day, um, I'm just going to try to keep this out of my head. But as it just happens, a few months later, um, going to church, and I remember there was a sermon that was um, that had really hit me hard, which was when it talked about the plan of salvation, the gospel. And it was talking about John 3.16, how for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then I had thought about it is that what separates us from God is our sin and that God commands every man everywhere to repent. And at that point, I realized that this isn't something that I need to do just to make it myself appear righteous outwardly, um, but rather that there must be an inward repentance. And at that point, I realized that I need to bow the knee to Jesus and repent and believe the gospel. And since then... One of the things that I think has, um, uh, that I am so thankful for, for that million dollar bill, is that it had connected me with Living Waters Ministry, um, which is by Ray Comfort. And one of the things that they're well known for is part, being part of that Great Commission and making um, disciples and evangelizing. Um, and for me, um, I, that's something that in my Christian walk from the beginning that I was very passionate about was telling other people about Jesus and how he is the only way to heaven, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's through repentance and faith in him that we may be saved. And I thank God every day for having obtained that salvation, for that um, gift that he gave me, not of myself, uh, and I may boast, but only in Christ. And it's not because of anything I've done, but only his work. And since then, my life has been changed forever. And, um, and because of that, Uh, I am free from sin. I know that uh, I have that power to overcome it. And I stand here today ready as an act of obedience to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, Kevin. uh, 
based on your testimony of faith in Jesus and your repentance, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is Andrew, and he is going to share his testimony as well. Uh, so like Kevin, I was raised in a Christian family. My entire extended family is Catholic. Um, so I was, this is the second time I'll be baptized. I was baptized as an infant by my great uncle, Father Fred. Um, but the foundation of my faith for my family probably wasn't too sturdy. Uh, I learned just last year that when my dad was about my age, uh, he went out of his way at times to convince people uh, that God wasn't real. Um, but I, I'm thankful to God that he's strengthened us and um, drawn us closer to him. I heard my father pray uh, to God for the first time in my whole life just last year, and I'm thankful for that turnaround. Uh, just as God's continued to work in my life. Um, in about middle school, we left the Catholic Church. My parents uh, felt it had a feeling of guilt um, every day, every week after Sunday service. They didn't have a feeling of hope. Um, and we went to a younger, uh, growing church that was exciting for a middle school kid like me with a rock band on stage and <laughs> made it easier to get up in the morning. But uh, I, my life was pretty compartmentalized. Um, we were Sunday Christians at best and probably every other Sunday Christians, <laughs> to be honest. But... Um, yeah, my dad used to say that God only asks for one hour a week. Can't we give him that? And I've learned there's so much more to, to give God. Um, and he deserves so much more. Uh, when I was growing up, I had a mentor try and tell me that uh, give me four priorities to live my life by or to order priorities in this way. He called them the four G's. I'm a gymnast, so the first one was it was God, then grades, then gymnastics, and last girls. <laughs> Putting the last three in order was a good formula to get into college, um, but I, until I was in college, I didn't know what it meant to put God first in my life. Uh, I thank God for placing some incredible people at Stanford, particularly an older teammate and Wilson Patton, who um, challenged and encouraged. Uh, me and some of my teammates. I remember shortly into my first quarter at Stanford, he wanted to meet with me to talk about what I believed, and I was terrified uh, because I couldn't I couldn't articulate it. All I had was this four G's, and uh, <laughs> I told him I told him I believed the Bible, what was written in the Bible, and that was really bold because I'd never read it. <laughs> um. I mean, I'd, I'd read some things. I knew generally what the gospel was, and 
I knew Paul was either an apostle or a disciple. I, I didn't know what the difference was. Um, but I, probably the biggest change when um, I started to become convicted of sin was through uh, Pastor Cliff's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 when he reached uh, the topic of sexual immorality. Um, even at the age of 18, I had uh, a three-year um, stumbling uh, through a, a daily habit of pornography. Um, and I knew it was wrong, but I didn't recognize it as sinful. So I'm thankful to Pastor Cliff's faithful teaching, um, even just using the word porneia and highlighting how uh, far I've fallen um, how separate I was living from God helped to display that uh, for me. Um, and so in January of 2014, just one day after service, I decided I was done with that. And three years later, I can say boldly that God has allowed me to persevere. Um, I'm, so I'm thankful for that, that change on the inside. Um, the process of sanctification is still ever ongoing and I'm thankful for what God continues to teach me and how I continue to grow but um, it's been 21 years now and it's it's time that I uh, declare publicly that Jesus is my Lord and Savior all right Andrew based on your uh, testimony your profession of faith in Jesus Christ your repentance and belief in him, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for your ministry, Derek, Andrew, and Kevin are a part of that ministry. What a blessing. And now we have uh, four other candidates that are going to get baptized, and the first is our only female of the day, and that's Fern Sentai. That's okay. I'm okay. We have water. This is good. And now Fern is going to share her story. My name is Fern. I was not born into a Christian home. My worldview system for most of my life came from heresy and paganism until I was much older. I lived my life in sin, lies, anger, confusion, pride, selfishness, disobedience, and worship of idols. I was an enemy of God. Ephesians 2.12 describes my life. Separate from Christ, stranger to the covenants of his promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But God is faithful to his own. Romans 10.20 I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. I met a person at my workplace. He was different than anyone I had ever met. He told me his testimony of being led to Jesus Christ, what Jesus had done in his life. He had been in deep, deep sin. He repented, turned from his sin. The Lord restored his marriage, his life, and relationship with God. I listened, and I asked where he went to church, and I went there. At that church, people came with Bibles they actually read. 
The sermon preached was from the Bible, God's word about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the songs, and the songs, even the songs sung spoke up to me about the re remedy for my lost condition. I learned that God is holy, that there is no sin in heaven. I was a lost sinner, totally depraved, unable to save myself. We come to God because he draws us. God is responsible for those who are his in every way. God is rich in grace, mercy, and love for those who are his, and he will judge everyone one day. Our only hope is in God's provision, Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, the Messiah, Lord, Savior, Redeemer. Jesus came to earth to be a sacrifice for our sins. He was sinless. He taught that he is God, died as a sacrifice for our sins. God resurrected Jesus, and Jesus ascended to be to heaven with God forever to be our mediator, advocate, and high priest. Jesus is the only way and sacrifice that can take away my sins. Jesus saves and restores a broken life to himself for his purposes and for his glory. This brings me to today and my request to be baptized. I have only been baptized as a child in a false church. I didn't know what baptized even meant according to God's word. I have desired to be baptized for a long time, like John MacArthur and Pastor McManus have said, churches today don't emphasize baptism. Baptism is not a condition of salvation, but it is a command throughout the New Testament, starting with Jesus, Matthew 3.13, Acts 38, Mark 1.5, and others. To be a believer and not be baptized is to be in a condition of disobedience. To be baptized in a false church is not a proper baptism. I want to be obedient to what God asks and desires. I want to obey all his commands. Baptism is the evidence of genuine repentance and an obedient heart. John MacArthur goes on to say, John, I mean Jesus, gave us examples in Matthew 3, 13 and 14. He had to be baptized because it is fitting for all righteousness to be fulfilled. John MacArthur explains that verse, baptism fulfills all righteousness that God asks of you and that it is a standard of righteousness to be baptized. Baptism identifies someone as a sinner who is repentant, confessed his sin, desired new life, and to be associated with the kingdom of the true and living God and his son, the Messiah. Ro Romans 6.3 talks about being immersed in Christ, immersed in his death. During the baptism process, being dipped in the water means death of the old life. Coming out of the water symbolizes new creation. Galatians 3.27 talks about being wrapped in Christ, that Christ covers you. Colossians 2.12 and 13 talks about having been buried with him and baptized, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Acts 2.38-41, in Peter's time on the day of Pentecost, if you were going to be baptized in the name of Jesus, you were going to be baptized in the name most hated by Jewish leadership. You are going to wind up losing your family, your social status, your job, your right to attend the synagogue, everything. You would immediately become indigent and homeless. The price was very high. You became a social outcast. But true faith will pay the price, count the cost. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believed and were baptized. Ephesians 4, Paul said, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I hereby confess in my willing submission to this divine appointed ordinance my glad obedience to the command of my Lord and Savior 
In this symbolic manner, I show forth my identification with the one who bore my sins, took my place, died in my stead, was buried, and rose again for my justification. As Christ went through the dreadful reality of suffering and death to secure my salvation, so by immersion in the water and emergence from there, I publicly declare my identification with my Lord and his burial, death, and resurrection on my behalf with the intention to walk with him in newness of life. Well, Foreign, that's uh, just a beautiful story and also just an excellent explanation of baptism. And that's her short version of her story because um, I've had the privilege of hearing her extended testimony, which is absolutely amazing. So uh, welcome, Fern. Get to know her. Uh, if you have opportunity, share your story with her and uh, hear her story as well. You will be blessed as a result. And Fern, you mentioned John MacArthur a couple times there, um, which kind of warms my heart. That was my pastor, Pastor John, and actually he was the one years ago who basically told me I need to get baptized because I'm a Christian. So uh, in fulfillment of the scriptures, uh, Fern, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And our next... Baptism is Tim, one step at a time. Tim Frisbee. And Tim's going to share his story with us. All right. I was born in 1916 in, in, in Chicago at the tail end of the 60s. My family was Roman Catholic, and I was brought up with all the trappings and traditions that, that entails. The version of God that I was exposed to had more of a resemblance to Santa Claus with a list that he makes and checks twice as opposed to the living God of Scripture. To me, God never missed a counting of your screw-ups, but when I called out of him out of need, he was too busy running the universe to actually care about my life. Needless to say, this did not present a positive situation that one could expect spiritual growth to be the outcome. As I reached my teen years, I became aware of how evil people prospered while those who were God-fearing and righteous were subject to the whims of these people who rejected God. And this angered me, and instead of driving me to him, it kept me from him, because I equated turning the other cheek to being permissive of evil. I forsook the pursuit of God and jumped headlong into sin and worldliness, thinking like many others that you only live once, so you might as well live it up since you're never going to make it into heaven anyways. Catholicism teaches work salvation from an Arminian perspective. The cross of Christ is not sufficient for sin, and he needs to be mystically sacrificed on the altar again and again and again. In other words, it is not finished. At the age of 21, having heavily partaken in the world's pleasures, I was already tiring of them. I was working in summer of 1990 at a factory owned by my grandfather, and I encountered a believer named Mike Ferguson. He was an urban black gentleman who told me some wild stories of escaping from dangerous people he encountered while living in Chicago's infamous Cabrini Green projects. He said Jesus looked out for him and kept him safe from the hood rats. About this time was when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and people were speculating about the biblical relevance of it. I asked Mike about this, and he asked me to meet him after work. When I met up with him, he asked me if I were to die, would I go to heaven? And I believed it was impossible to know because Catholicism offers no, uh, no assurances. 
And he opened the Bible and shared verses that demonstrate the truthfulness of God's word and the flaws of Catholic theology. Upon discovering these flaws, rather than becoming argumentative, I found myself relieved by the simplicity of the gospel message. I asked Jesus to be my Lord and forgive my sins in that parking lot in Elk Grove, Illinois. And what happened thereafter was a series of twists, turns, and somewhat messy work that God had to do in a very messed up life. I've been from one extreme to another in terms of churches. I'm being baptized again because I was too young a believer at the first time, and the church was a proponent of prosperity theology and um, crazy charismania stuff. What I do today, I do in complete knowledge of what it's about, and I hereby renounce any loyalties to this world and pledge my unwavering support to the supreme king and ruler of all, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Tim's been going to our church for a few years, been an absolute blessing, and that's a powerful story. Tim, thanks. For, thank God for Mike Ferguson. Amen. And uh, Jesus saved you from the hood rats. Sounds like. <laughs> anyway. Kind of sort Tim, based on your testimony, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Next is Adam Albright. Good morning. So some of you already may know, and believe it or not, I used to fight professionally in a cage or a ring for sport. It's referred to as MMA or ultimate fighting. Some people, once they know this, might think of me as some tough guy. But I can promise you, and my wife can attest to this, that I'm one of the most sensitive guys you're ever going to meet. In the fight sport, I would step out in front of thousands and not get nervous. Now, I go out to the street and proclaim the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ, also in front of many. But I can tell you the truth, I'm more nervous now than I think I've ever been. Call me Moses. No speaking skill whatsoever and a mouthful of marbles. May God be my voice. I'm a Christian, a sinner that was saved by grace, saved from a justly deserved punishment because of my sins that I committed against an all-holy God. Through the death on the cross and the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who took the full wrath of God upon himself in my place, and only through him and not by my works, Am I saved from an eternal death in a place called hell? But I now have eternal life by him and through him. I fully accept the reality of God's existence, and I truly believe the Bible is true, and it is the word of God which is profitable for teaching, for proof, correction, and training in righteousness. The Lord God has done a many, mighty work in my life. I was raised in a Christian family with one younger brother, one older sister. We all were avid churchgoers. We went to Christian schools. And with many lessons in Sunday school by faithful teachers and a Christian mother and father, 
At the age of five, I asked my mother if I could get saved because I believed in God. I believed Jesus was who he said he was. And I believed I was a sinner in need of a savior. I can't remember a time I did not believe there was a God of the Bible. So with my mother by my side, I prayed to God and probably prayed a prayer asking Jesus into my heart. I believed I was saved. However, looking back, I now question if that was the moment of my salvation or if I would become a true witness for what I tell you now, a true prodigal son story. Now looking back, I can tell you I was a failure to my God and King. My living testimony, fruit, was not one of a Christian, nor was it pleasing to God. I was living a life that was no different than any of my non-Christian friends. Even though I knew better, I would justify myself and say, my salvation is secure. I believe in Jesus. In my mid-twenties, I walked away from the church I was attending, and I became a true hypocrite, believing and saying one thing, but acting and living completely different. I was a very selfish young man, and I did whatever I wanted. I started cursing. I would get drunk, go to parties. I longed after the worldly things. Now looking back, I ask, how could have I been a Christian? And the Bible states in James 4.4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17 through 18, So every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. What kind of fruit was I portraying to the world? Even though I did my own thing, God showed me patience. Through his grace alone, my life was spared on four separate occasions. Yet sadly, despite all this, I would continue to live my lifestyle, and none of these moments brought me out of my lifestyle of sin. I still lived the life I wanted, such pride, arrogance. It truly is amazing to me that God did just not let me go. But, in, but he, in all his sovereignty, had a plan. Then God brought one of the best gifts into my life, my wife now, Nang. Together we moved to California, got married, had two kids. During this time here in California, Nang became a Christian. And I was not the one to help her and lead her to Christ. But that's her story to tell. Just more evidence that I use that I was not really who I thought I was. We started going to church and believed God was in control. But at one church, there was one man who was talking to me about going out and giving some gospel tracts and witnessing. So I ended up going out with him a few times. Why not? I'm a Christian, right? I should be telling others about Christ. From this, I found there was much personal, personal conviction, and I wanted to learn more. I started watching street preaching online, and this had a profound shaking in my life. It was like a light went off, and I found I was not living as, as I should, but I was living a lie. Though through God's word being preached from the Bible, God exposed me, and I realized who he was and where I was. Among many familiar verses I've heard preached in the past, one took hold of me and shook me to the core. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one through 23 Not everyone who says to me, 
The Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The God who I believed in became very different to me. I started to fear God. This was so awakening what type of person I was. Jesus said, either you were with me or against me. I was lukewarm at best. I could not serve two masters. It's either Jesus Christ or myself. I can no longer to continue in the life that I was living. Finally understanding what true repentance was, I begged God for forgiveness. I begged God for discernment. My Savior, my God, my King, I trampled on your blood. On that cross, Jesus paid in full the wrath of God that was intended for me. This wicked, depraved person who did horrible things has been forgiven. I have passed from death to life. After that, it wanted nothing to do with the worldly things I was doing. The sin I tried to justify became a thing of the past. Things I was doing that I knew were wrong would try to stop on my own, but fail at it again and again, no longer had the control of my life. My conscience became clear and strengthened. Psalms 103:12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. My love for my Savior was never more evident. I longed for God's word and prayed for wisdom. I was truly born again. My sin nature did not have control over me as it once had. And one of the most profound things between the old Adam and new Adam, no pun intended, was a strong desire and longing for the lost. I had a true recognition that all who do not repent of their sins, believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, will die in their sin, where they will face God as their judge, where they will have to give an account of their life. Hebrew 9.27 As it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes the judgment. Without Jesus Christ as their advocate, they will be cast into hell. There was an overwhelming sense of urgency, and there are so many out there. Jesus said, why does, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus said in Luke that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this is why I share my story with you, because I love you. I love you enough to tell you the truth, and, I lo and love without the truth is a lie. Now, I'm still learning, and I would never claim to be perfect or that I know everything because I stumble and I don't know everything. But God has called me to himself, and I want to be faithful to the King of Kings. What a joy it is to tell you of the mighty work God has done in my life, who saved such a wretch and sinner like me. And I will close with scripture found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Through the saving power of Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus alone do I put my faith and hope in the promises 
he gave of life in him, in life more abundant. Amen. Adam, thanks for your story, brother. And uh, just another reminder that Jesus changes people. Well, Adam, uh, based on your testimony, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now our, our last candidate of the day, Josh. Joshua, go ahead and pronounce your last name. Guillermo. Okay, that's what I was going to say. <clears throat> Silent G. Anyway, Joshua, go ahead. Share your story. Hello. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, haven't we seen this guy up there already? Uh, and you're right, you have. But let me explain. Most people who have known me for a long time would probably think that I've been a Christian since I was a small child. While the reality is, I didn't reach a place of true repentance until about a year ago. I grew up going to church, and I was homeschooled using Christian curriculum. We even had Christian math books. Uh, so if you were to ask me what the square root of 50 was, I would probably tell you it was Jesus. <laughs> uh, Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, meaning the unbelievers, are without excuse. That being the case, I can only imagine how much more so I am without excuse. I have been hearing God's word taught by solid Bible-believing teachers as long as I can remember. But despite that, I had an almost non-existent relationship with God. I was able to maintain an outward appearance of Christianity, and most of the time I had even convinced myself that I was a believer. <clears throat> but in those quiet moments, I knew that something was wrong. Uh, people around me would talk about having a hunger for God's word, and I would have no idea what that was like. Whenever I heard someone say that they couldn't wait for the Lord's return, I would think, well, that's just something old people say. Uh, I didn't want Jesus to return. I was more interested in the things of the world. Because I failed to develop any kind of deep relationship with the Christians around me, I never talked to anyone about these struggles. I believed that God was real in my mind, but he was nowhere in my heart. Then about six years ago, I started seeing my now wife, Alex, and finally began to develop a real relationship with a Christian. One who would not just let me float by. It took a long time to peel away the layers of defenses that I had built up over the years. I still wanted to appear as the Christian guy who had his life together. God used Alex to reveal to me the depths of my sin and my distance from God. For the first time in my life, I began to seriously question whether or not I was a believer. Verses like Matthew 7, 22 and 23 greatly frightened me. It reads, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. For a time I wavered in my faith. I thought I felt sorrow for my sins and had a desire to be right with God, but my feelings were just worldly regret. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation the sorrow of the world produces death. My worldly sorrow would only last so long, because deep down I still loved the world. I was living only for entertainment and the pride of my work. 
But 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Uh, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Only in my brokenness was I able to see my sin for what it was, an affront to God. I knew that I needed Jesus to have forgiveness of sins. I needed the indwelling Holy Spirit to keep me from living in a continual pattern of sin. I now look at the world around me, and I see the trials and temptations it will bring. I see the many distractions it holds, and the pain that is everywhere because of sin. Uh, Maybe I'm just getting old, but I can't wait for the Lord's return. Uh, I'm so thankful that God never allowed me to stray far from the church, and he gave me a godly wife that builds me up and holds me accountable. Uh, It doesn't always seem like a great thing to have a wife with the gift of exhortation, Uh, but God has given me exactly what I need. Uh, I now have assurance of my salvation, and I can see God working in me to produce attitudes and desires that I never would have thought possible before. I would encourage you all to get to know the people around you in the body. Uh, Find out where they are in their walk with the Lord. Just because someone has gone to to a solid church since they were a small child does not mean they are saved. Um, Attending Bible study or Sunday school every week and knowing all the right answers doesn't mean they're saved. I am proof that this is true. Man, thank you, Joshua. Um, Josh just reminds me that, so he's getting baptized again. He's been baptized before and reminds me that I got baptized a second time as well because my first baptism wasn't legitimate and we had several others up here who've been baptized more than once. So if, if that's your story where you got baptized already but it wasn't at the right time with full understanding or a legitimate reason, uh, it's, it's best to get baptized with full understanding, confident that now you're truly born again. So thanks for your story, Joshua, and you know, thank God for wonderful, faithful wives like Alex. Well, Joshua, based on your testimony, go ahead and grab your wrist there. Uh, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, keep, keep these folks in prayer. God continues to bless them, watch over them, and help them grow. And now let me go ahead and pray for lunch and our day. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these six children of yours you've adopted into your family because of the truth of Jesus Christ. May your hand of blessing, protection, and guidance continue to be on them and go before them. We thank you for your love, for your grace. We pray all these things for your glory. Also, we thank you for being our provider as we Head to lunch now. We commit all things to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And you are dismissed. God bless. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.